0: All right, everybody, welcome to the THiNK Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show where we tackle impossible questions from a Christian perspective to get you better equipped to know what you believe and how to share and defend it. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you first about something brand new. We've been doing the THiNK Institute and the THiNK Podcast for about eight months now. We've created tons of resources. We've got blog articles. We've got podcast episodes. I've done in-church trainings. We've written books. We published catechids, our resource for families. And you know what? There are a lot of other great resources out there online. And I will come across many of these throughout the course of my week. And I want to share these with you as well as the latest resources that we're creating here at the Think Institute. So if you like the kind of content we're creating and you want to discover more of it, you will like the Think Update. The Think Update is a brief weekly email delivered straight to your inbox with tools and tips to help you define and defend what you believe, the biblical message. You can subscribe to the Think Update right now and be sure to be one of the first to get it when we publish our first Email, our our first update, it's going to be coming out later this week. You can get that by going to thethink.institute. I've also put a link in the description of this video if you're watching online right now, so you can go to that link and fill in your email address right there at the Think Institute page. So, wanted to make sure that you guys knew about that. It's going to be very exciting. We're just starting it. It's brand new, hot off the press, or at least it will be once I send it out. Now, today we're talking about a a subject that is often controversial, often very offensive, and one that, you know what, a lot of folks are just as happy not addressing and really, quite frankly, not really thinking about. But you know what, here at the Think Podcast, I really enjoy tackling some of those impossible questions. And I still remember I was talking to one of my ministry partners early on and talking about you know what should what direction should we really take the podcast in and and he really encouraged me to position myself and position this podcast as one that likes to tackle those impossible questions and sometimes we do it with a guest sometimes i just do it myself as you know but today we're talking about the topic of god's wrath and this is a subject that we oftentimes get wrong but it's one that it is so crucial to get right. So I want to talk about how to explain God's wrath in a way that will actually make sense to your non-Christian friends. And so I put out a post on Facebook earlier today, and I asked this question. When you think of God's wrath, what images come to your mind? And some of the, some of the responses that we got were, very good uh one person posted a gif of a lightning bolt striking the road right in front of your car someone else said my sin uh, other folks talked about fire and brimstone raining down and uh, there was a lot of that sort of imagery one person said the cross and you know we really got some very compelling imagery uh, one person said the flood fire and brimstone raining from the sky the ground opening up and swallowing people, plagues, the cross. So that was all from Marcus McLean. Marcus, thank you for that really graphic and, quite honestly, very biblical imagery. You know, for me, when I think about God's wrath, some of the first images that come to my mind are Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed back in Genesis. Those were two immoral cities that God destroyed. I also think of thunder and lightning. I think of uh, invading Armies, you know. I even think of images that don't come from the Bible, like the city of Pompeii in ancient Italy that was destroyed by a volcano. And uh, Pompeii was a very immoral city. There's nothing in Scripture that says Pompeii would be destroyed, but it sure seems like they. It seems like one of those uh, Sodom and Gomorrah type situations. I think about hellfire and all these different uh, forms of God's wrath, and yet there is an element of God's wrath that many may may miss. And this makes it very difficult when we're trying to explain wrath in terms that people today can understand. If we miss this, we actually have a harder time building that bridge between the biblical language of God's wrath and the mindset of the typical non-Christian today. And I hesitate to even use the word typical because there really is no typical non-Christian other than the fact that They don't believe in God. They share that characteristic. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Now, why this passage? First of all, because God explicates what his wrath is like in Romans 1, 18 through 24 in a way that is a little bit unique, a little bit unusual to the rest of Scripture. It's also one of these passages that I've been spending a lot of time on because Our church, Park Community Church, is going through Romans right now, and I'm actually in process of memorizing Romans chapter 1 as we go through it. So, I'm working on memorizing this passage, and it really talks a lot about God's wrath. So, what we're going to do as we look at this passage is we're going to ask these questions. First, we're going to ask, what did we ever do to God? Then we're going to ask, is this really our fault? Then we'll ask, what does God's wrath really look like? And this is where we're going to see the missing element. And then finally, I'm going to explain how you can offer your friend, your non-Christian friend, hope and rescue or escape from God's wrath, which is very real and which is going to be very relevant. So let's now get into the main points. Let's talk about the first question, what did we ever do to God? Well, before we do that, let's actually pull up Romans chapter one and uh, let's get into this passage and let's talk about what does Paul, what does the apostle Paul who wrote this passage actually say about God's wrath? Well, here's what he says, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness That's the passage that really talks about God's wrath. But I want us, before we answer these questions, I want to backtrack and look at verses 16 and 17, because this is going to be very crucial as we unpack what God's wrath is. We're going to need to see the solution to God's wrath, and that's in verses 16 through 17. Here's what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's our passage. Now let's look at our first question. The first question is this, what did we ever do to God? All this talk about God's wrath really makes us ask that question. What did we ever do to God? Well, what we're gonna do as we look at this passage is we're going to unpack it in reverse. And here's why. If, if you open up your Bible to this passage, what you'll see is that there's this logical progression from Paul not being ashamed of the gospel to this statement about God's wrath. And Paul says the word for over and over and over. And one of the things that I learned from John Piper, a pastor and author based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, is this. Whenever you see a passage like this where you've got four and then four and then four. The four functions as an explanation. It's like saying because of this. And so what you can do is you can take the passage and flip it in reverse, and and you can make the argument going in reverse, and you can say, because of this, therefore that, because of this, therefore that. So we're gonna start in verse 21, and we're gonna answer this question: what did we ever do to God? And we're gonna tackle this question in the reverse order from how it's written but in the logical order of the way that Paul is progressing his argument. So what did we ever do to God? Verse 21 says, Because men did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they did this all while knowing God. Then in verse 22, it says, They became fools all while claiming to be wise. And their foolishness, we find out in verse 23, is that their foolishness was typified in this that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. They took God, who is immortal and who can't be imaged, and they exchanged that, they rejected God in favor of images that look like God's creation birds, immortal or uh, mortal men, you know. Reptiles, creeping things, animals. Now, this makes God angry because God created us to serve and glorify Him. God created us to honor Him as God, and God has given us gifts. But instead of saying thank you, we, and I I mean we because this is a universal condition, we exchanged God for silly images and idols. Look, you can see I've got a a statue of Charles Spurgeon back there behind me. And when I first ordered that, my kids asked me why I was getting an idol of Charles Spurgeon. And I had to explain to them, look, it's, it's a reminder of this great man, but Charles Spurgeon will be the first person to tell you that we shouldn't worship him. And so I don't worship that statue. Instead, it's a reminder of, of a great man of God, and I seek to imitate him even as he imitated Christ. But the condition of Of humanity is to bow down to idols and to worship them. So I have to check my own heart that Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor and author, does not become an idol to me in my own heart. It's not about him. It's about the Lord that he served. But the universal condition of mankind is that we do worship and serve idols. And this makes God angry. So what did we ever do to God? We rejected God. We took the good gifts that he gave us. We took the animals that we were supposed to have dominion over. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about this. And we turned them around. And instead of worshiping God, we worshiped idols. We worshiped his creation. And the Bible says that this is very foolish. And so while we, even while we knew God, we denied God. We suppressed God. And we claimed to be wise, but actually became fools. So, this makes God angry. So, now the natural question that people want to ask here is this. Well, how can you say that they knew God? You know, after all, if we're talking about the majority of humanity, they didn't have the Bible as written as we have it today. So, how can you say that they knew God? Or if they did have the Bible, you know, nobody explained it to them correctly. And so, you know, hey, hey, listen, nobody gave them good enough reasons to believe in God. How can you say that these folks knew God? Well, what you're really asking here is, is this, is this really our fault? All right, fine. So we suppressed God, we exchanged God for idols, but is this really our fault? When the, for thousands of years, the Bible has not been accessible to the, maybe let's say the majority of mankind. Is this really our fault? God, the underlying question here is, isn't God unjust for inflicting his wrath upon us? And this is going to be the question that your non-believing friend or relative or coworker is naturally going to ask. And it's a good question. And you and I need to be asking that question as well. Is this really fair? Because is this really our fault? Well, what we find out as we continue Paul's argument here, if we look at verses 19 and 20, verse 20b says this, they are without excuse. Now, why are they without excuse? they didn't have the Bible, how can they still be without excuse? Here's why. Verse 20 says that they had enough evidence. See, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, there are two ways that God reveals himself to us. By his works and by his word. And even if you don't have his word, God still reveals himself by his works in the things that have been made. Now, what what do we see from the things that have been made? Well, Paul says we see his invisible attributes. So, God is such a boss that he can make even his invisible attributes plain to us. So plain, in fact, that we are without excuse for missing them. In fact, we can't miss them. We actually have to deny them. And those invisible attributes are His eternal power and His divine nature. Now, God, in the Bible, God is eternally powerful. He existed before the creation of the world. And His existence is so awesome and so transcendent that He actually spoke the world into existence. So, when it talks about His eternal power, it's talking about how God transcends our world our world had to come from somewhere flowers don't plant uh flowers don't create themselves human beings don't create ourselves we procreate but all all creation can do is procreate we can't originate ourselves and or bring ourselves into being so the uh, the very existence of this world which is contingent meaning it depends on something else for its existence testifies to the fact that god must exist and that we must have a creator who brings us into being one of the fundamental principles of philosophy is that out of nothing nothing comes and uh, our very um scientific endeavors if if you uh, know anything about science are predicated upon the fact that this universe is governed by invisible rules natural rules physical rules rules of logic rules of mathematics rules that correspond between our mind and the world in which we live. And these rules are unchanging. They are immaterial. They are universal. They are absolute, and they are knowable to our minds. This is all irrefutable proof that there is a divine lawgiver, because we take these things for granted, and they can't come from changing matter. Changing matter cannot bring unchanging, immaterial laws into being. And so we have enough evidence from the creation around us to know that God, that, that God's eternal power is what it is. And even in our very soul, the very longing that we have to live forever, the longing that we have for justice, the longing that we have to be moral, the longing that we have to see things made right in the world. These are things that cannot originate, In us because they are transcendent. They are beyond us because none of us is the perfect example of these things. And so if there's there's this desire for something beyond us that's been clearly placed within us, if the universe is governed by these rules, what Paul is saying here is that we have enough evidence and we should have known. This is why in verse 19 it says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So, because of this, we are all without excuse. So, what did we ever do to God? We rejected Him and started worshiping creation instead of Him. And is this really our fault? Yes. Unfortunately for us, this is really our fault. Now, so far, I haven't used a lot of biblical language. I haven't used a lot of theological terminology. I'm, I'm just explaining what the Bible says in clear terms that I I think anybody would be able to reproduce in common language. It's our fault and we have enough evidence. So now the question is, what does God's wrath really look like? How could we understand his wrath? Should we now expect that a lightning bolt is going to come out of the sky and burn us up? Well, we have to understand what God's wrath is really like. Let's talk... We're going to talk about the two forms that God's wrath really takes. But first, we have to see what God reveals to the Apostle Paul in verse 18. He says this. He says, God's wrath is revealed. So, God's wrath is revealed here in this world. That means that we ought to be able to look around and see God's wrath at work. We ought to be able to see God's anger and displeasure at sin. But here's the thing. I don't see a lot of thunderbolts coming down. I don't see a lot of the ground opening up and swallowing up sinners. Yes, I see natural disasters, but those seem to strike people pretty indiscriminately. And it seems like the quote unquote good and the quote unquote bad both get swallowed up when there's an earthquake. So what's going on here, Paul? How can you say that the wrath is revealed in such a way that it's visible to us? Well, here's how. First of all, it's revealed from heaven. So it is from God, but it's also revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, that means people, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's going to be a direct connection between the cause that is sin and the effect that is wrath. This is not indiscriminate, but it's focused. So a tsunami that strikes Indonesia. Now, could that be God's wrath? Could that be an example? Uh, a manifestation of God's wrath. Well, in a certain sense, yes, in in that this world is fallen and we are all sinners and we all do deserve to perish. In another sense, yes, because there is a greater wrath, a permanent wrath, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, that it does remind us of where all all, uh, unrepentant sinners, uh, folks who have not turned to God in repentance and faith, will one day actually suffer God's punishment. But the kind of wrath that Paul's talking about here is not indiscriminate. It doesn't sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous, the good with the bad, the just with the unjust. So so what is this wrath that he's talking about? Well, the second thing we have to realize is that this wrath very well might not be recognized. It might not be. It's not that it's not recognizable, but it might not be recognized by us because of what our condition is like because we are suppressing the truth about God in the first place. And therefore, by suppressing the truth about God, we have actually cut ourselves off from the ability to see God. Because we're suppressing the truth about God from the get-go, now when God's wrath is revealed, we've already ruled out God as a possible explanation for it. And here's what this is like. This is like a man who moves from Mexico to Canada And he doesn't believe in winter. He only believes in summer. And so one day his wife said that she could prove that winter was a real thing. So one frosty January morning, she asked him, Dear, I bet I can prove to you that winter is a real season. Now, does it snow in the summer? And the man replies, No, everyone, every dummy knows that it doesn't snow in the summer. The summer is hot. And so his wife said, Well, look outside. And the man looks outside and he sees big, fluffy flakes of snow covering his lawn and turning it white. And his wife goes, ha, you see? And the man looks out his window and sees this and he says, well, what do you know? I guess it does snow in the summer. So you see, his wife, of course, walks away exasperated. But this man had cut himself off from the ability to see what was going on. He didn't believe in winter. And so he had to change his paradigm and say, well, I guess it snows in the summer. And so the evidence that was right before his eyes failed to prove to him the truth because he was suppressing the truth. Now that's a that's a silly example. That's a silly example of, of truth suppression. Okay, but the fact is that if you have an unbeliever who's asking you for evidence of God, of God's wrath. The very fact that he is starting out by assuming that God is not real and assuming that God's wrath is not a real category, no matter how much evidence and proof that you give, unless God opens his eyes, and here's where I want to get to, unless God opens his eyes, he's never going to see this. So as you're explaining God's wrath to an unbeliever, just keep that in mind, that there's a lot of truth suppression going on here, and lest you think that I'm judging this person, I want you to understand, this is you and me. This is you and me apart from God's grace. We suppress the truth. We And if we suppress the truth, how much more did, if we suppress the truth now as believers, how much more did we suppress the truth as unbelievers? And how much more would we expect our non-believing friends to be suppressing the truth even now? And so, we have to understand that, that God's wrath is revealed, but we might not see it. All right. So, Let's talk about the two forms that wrath does take. And only one of them is being manifested now. First, there is the first form, which is the ultimate destination of those who suppress God and want nothing to do with him. Now, that is hell. This is like what everybody thinks of. This is fire and brimstone and darkness and gnashing of teeth. And the Old Testament destructions were a type of that. They were a signpost of that. Do you know that in the Old Testament, it doesn't talk really hardly at all, if at all, about eternal hell. Instead, God uses real-world examples to point us toward that final destination. Jude 1 verse 7 says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Look, you can go to where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be in the old days. And today, you know what's there? The Dead Sea. Salt deposits everywhere. You can go there and you can see that sulfur and salt and fire has at one point rained down on this area. And that is meant to be a signpost pointing us toward the eternal wrath of God that is coming. And when I'm talking about this, listen, I don't speak about this lightly. This is a terrifying thing. This is what kept me up at night when I was seven years old. The idea that there are people in punishment in, in right now, they're not in hell. They're in Hades. That's a whole nother story, but they're waiting to go to this place of eternal wrath. Now, when you're talking about this, remember, This is a consequence for sin. It is fair. It is just. It doesn't mean it's pleasant. It's, by definition, not pleasant. But it corresponds to the sin that sends us there. And this is why we as believers need to be so incredibly grateful for God's grace. Because we are not Christians because we used our intellect and our free will to will ourselves to have the faith to trust in God. We are Christians because God revealed himself to us. And by grace, we have been saved through faith. And grace, by definition, is an undeserved gift from God. So, those who suppress God are going to suppress him all the way into eternity. They're going to hate him forever. And hell is where that hatred meets its natural conclusion. That's the first kind of wrath. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter one, and um, so here's here's why I'm talking about this is like I mentioned we've been discussing Romans one the the preaching series has been uh, on Romans one over the last few weeks and uh, I'm recording this on Facebook as we speak and uh, my pastor and friend. Dan Osborne, just asked if this is because he didn't explain it well yesterday. Uh, no, absolutely not. This is because the the teaching series has inspired me to, to talk about this. And so I spent a lot of time uh, exegeting this passage, but I'm actually not going to be talking about specifically what Dan talked about yesterday, which was he actually talked about the specific sin of homosexuality. And I would highly recommend that you go and listen to that. I think Dan did a great job expositing that passage, and uh, drawing out what Paul is talking about there. He did it in a reasonable way. Uh, I'm not going there. I'm sure I will at some point, but uh, by virtue of this ministry, I am able to take a little bit more of an edge with some of the things we're talking about. Our audience tends to skew more exclusively male, not ex- not not exclusively but more male and tends to be a little bit younger as well and uh millennials tend to like that edge and I, I so I, anyway, so I can get a little bit more serrated in some of the things that I talk about here as opposed to, you know, when I was preaching on a Sunday morning. So, here's where we're at. The second form of wrath that Paul is discussing is this. It is a, it is a giving over. And this is what you can't miss. It is the active giving over of a sinner to his sin. In a sense, it's a passive form of wrath. Now, nothing God does is passive. Everything he does is intentional. It is foreordained. It is predestined, but it is passive in the sense that it's the allowing of the sinner to open every door he wants to open to pursue greater and greater sin. You cannot miss this. A lot of people miss this when they're talking about God's wrath. And if you do, it's going to make it much harder to talk about God's wrath to your unbelieving friends. Here's what it says. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Now this is wrath, it's coming from God and it's a response to sin, but it's not just like so so because of that it's not just this automatic effect. It's not like if I drop a bowling ball, it hits the ground and that's just this automatic thing that gravity does. This is a decision that God makes. It's an intentional decision. That's why I hesitate to say that it's passive. But it's in line and in accordance with man's decision. He gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. He allows them to become fully impure and to freely pursue their lusts. Now, these are the very things that will destroy them. Now, here's the crazy thing about this kind of wrath, and that's this. This kind of wrath is only harmful to you if you love sin and want to pursue sin. Because God opening up the door for you to be able to go and sin is not God shoving you into the room so that you go sin. It's God saying, what Paul is describing here, is that God is allowing you to enter the room. Now, this is not the only way that God does this. In Romans chapter 9, he does talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and that was an active hardening. Pharaoh always did what he wanted to do, but it was God who was working behind the scenes on Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would desire to do something that was harmful and even sinful. Now, this is where there is a lot we have to unpack. I'm not going to fully unpack it, but I will just say God is sovereign over the whole process. He was sovereign over Pharaoh. He's sovereign over your friends. He's sovereign over you and me. He's always sovereign, but human beings are still culpable. We are always responsible for our sin. This is how God operates. He's sovereign, but we are still responsible. And we're not gonna unpack all the mechanics of that right now. I just don't want it to seem like I'm putting the control in man's hands. Ultimately, the control is always in God's hands but from a human perspective which is which is real the, the choice to sin is a real choice it's man acting out of what's in his heart from a human perspective this the entering of the room to sin is something that we are held responsible for and so god allowing man to sin is an intentional decision but it's only harmful for the person who does it for the person who enters into that room and sins now there's there's a pretty harrowing and horrifying example of this in action i'm going to give you this example this is from the real world okay this is from my own state of illinois and from the state of new york and that is the recent abortion very permissive abortion laws that our states have passed governor pritzker Uh, about a a month or two months ago, just recently signed into law a extraordinarily permissive abortion law that will allow a mother to perform late term abortions uh, up to the moment of birth. Now, this is something that is so horrifying and repulsive to me. I don't even want to explain what that works but you could google late-term abortion and you could see what that process involves now if you know me i'm pro-life you can call me anti-abortion whatever you want to say but just from a, a a point of revulsion there is something that is exponentially more revolting i'm not saying it's ontologically more immoral because I think abortion is always immoral. But a late-term abortion is literally the slaughtering of a fully formed child, viable outside the womb. Now, the, the state, that's all I'm going to say about that. The state of Illinois has made that legal. Now, I was there when they passed that law. I went with a pastor friend of mine. They wouldn't let us into the hall. They closed us out. They locked us out. Well, we we um, there was a it was an invite only. It was an RSCP only event. So we stayed outside and we prayed. And they actually ended up redirecting traffic away from that exit so nobody would interact with us. That's a whole another story. I can tell you about that sometime. But. That law, here's something that occurred to me after we left that place and we were walking away. That law is only harmful to parents who choose to take advantage of it. Do you see what I'm saying? For a believer in Jesus Christ or a pro-life person or just a a, a mom or dad who's not a believer who doesn't choose abortion, that law is completely irrelevant. The fact that you can do it, no one's forcing you to you to do it. This isn't communist China. In communist China, they have forced abortions because of their one-child policy. Now it's a two-child policy. But in America, we don't have forced abortions. And so a permissive abortion law is only harmful to the families that choose to take advantage of it, so to speak. This is God's permissive wrath. He opens the door and removes his hand of restraint, allowing you to walk through that door if you so choose. So, do you see? This is the part we often miss, but that is God's wrath. And so, when we say look around for God's wrath, it's being revealed. Look look at the laws that are being signed by your state legislatures. Look at the laws that are, look at the Supreme Court cases and what they're legalizing. Look at the kind of things that are being advocated for. And there's an individual component to this, but there's a corporate component to it as well. And this is why Paul says that God allows the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See, there's a plurality to this. There's a there's a corporate and community side to this. This is when lust and sin begin to form into communities. This is when you have advocacy groups that are pushing for the freedom and the autonomy to be able to uh commit different forms of sexual sins. This is when you have pressure groups um, putting, you know, lobbying in Washington or in Springfield or in your state capitol, advocating for the right of individuals and groups to do this sort of thing with impunity, things that the Bible condemns. This is when you have movements and parades and festivals that celebrate sin. This is when sin is celebrated by a community and that celebration is celebrating something that is dishonorable. And so now the community is taking its corruption on the road. And before you know it, they are beginning to demand that the broader culture celebrate that sin with them and, and, and participate in the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. There's a corporate element to it. My friends, this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about God's wrath. It's a permissive wrath that begins to permeate out into the culture. But it's a self inflicted wrath. Do you see? Now, when we put things into modern terms like this, we can see that God's wrath is very real, it's very relevant, it's being revealed in our society, in our culture right now. So, how does this play into the conversation that you're having with your non Christian friend? Well, uh, if your friend is addicted to pornography, And, and, um, this is the way that pornography works. Uh, it starts out more quote unquote innocent and it gets deeper and darker and it gets harder to resist and it gets hard. It gets more and more entangling. And before you know it, the user is ensnared. All right. Homosexuality is something that ensnares and becomes part of your identity constant lust incessant covetousness and desire for things that you shouldn't have that that turn uh destructive and even self-destructive sin is very destructive and and uh, it's it's self-harming and what happens is the more you engage in it the harder it becomes to do anything that is right even by your own standards let alone by God's perfect standards and so what you can see when your life begins to be taken over by sin When your community begins to be taken over by sin, when the laws begin to be reflective of the community's desire for sin, what Paul says is this is God's wrath being revealed from heaven. So now do you see how scary this is? Do you see how terrifying it is when we look out at our culture and we say, wow, okay, this looks less like a tsunami or a thunderbolt or an earthquake and more like God letting us do what we want to the extent that we can no longer choose not to do it this is very relevant. This is not fire and brimstone on the street corner with a placard and a bullhorn. But God bless those guys who are on the street corner. I will never talk bad about street preachers, but they're oftentimes talking about hell. Paul here is not talking about hell. He's talking about hell on earth, hell in our communities, hell in our own hearts. And this is terrifying. It's very relevant. And if we get this wrong, it'll make us, it'll make it harder for us to talk about God's wrath with our non-Christian friends. And it's very urgent that we talk about God's wrath with our non-Christian friends. So the next question we need to ask is this. Is there any hope? Well, thank God. Remember we talked about verses 16 and 17. Yes, there is hope. Why? Because just as God reveals His wrath from heaven, He also reveals His righteousness in the gospel. In verse 17, it says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And what is faith? Faith is dependence. Faith is the opposite of self reliance. Faith is the opposite of dependence on or of, of suppression of truth. It's recognizing the truth, and instead of suppressing it, it's accepting it, believing it, trusting in it. And that's why in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, salvation is a biblical word. It just means rescue. It means being saved. It's it's for everyone who believes, Paul says. It's for the Jew. It's for the Greek. Now, that covers everybody because in those days, the Greek was someone who spoke Greek, which was like English today. And then the Jews were the ones who had the words of God, but they had their own culture. So, it's for every subculture and it's for the broader culture. It's for... Uh, those on the the biblical side of the knowledge of God and those outside of the community of God. Anyone who will come to God, whether you grew up in the church or outside the church, anyone who will come to God in faith will be set free from the wrath of God, free from the control of sin in their life. And when families do this together, their families are set free from abuse, self-abuse, uh, the destructive power of sin drunkenness. Because the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's why the righteousness that's revealed there is the answer to the wrath that's revealed in the world. Righteousness just means rightness. It means justice. It means goodness. And so we're really looking at two different sides of God's justice here when we're talking about wrath. We're talking about God justly punishing sin, And we're talking about God uh, punishing sin within sinners and in the community of sinners and in the bodies of sinners. And then we're talking about God justly releasing sinners from the consequences of sin because of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that God punished his own son on behalf of his people, anyone who would ever have faith in him, so that they would not perish, they would not be overtaken by their sin, overtaken by wrath in this life and wrath in the life to come, but would have everlasting life because Jesus who never sinned took that wrath in our place. See, God, who is always in control, allowed Jesus to face the wrath of God. He allowed Jesus to be handed over to sin and crucified, even though Jesus never sinned. He died like a sinner, but then Jesus, even though he was buried, he rose from the dead and conquered sin. So now, as you're explaining this to your non-Christian friend, suddenly the wrath is very relevant, but suddenly this the gospel is very relevant as well, because the gospel is the only way out of the wrath of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, he says in verse 16, and if you go back to verse 15, it says he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He's eager because this is the best message is the only message that could possibly set them free and set their friends free from the wrath of God. Now, I want to talk really quickly about a few objections that folks might have as we bring this to a close. First of all, what about this objection? Isn't God being capricious or arbitrary? Isn't God just being petty for being so wrathful? You know, God, why can't you just shake it off? No. God is the standard of righteousness. God is the holy judge of everyone. And if there's one thing that we can't stand, it's a judge who goes easy on crime. We have a great example of this with the police officer, Officer Geiger who uh, killed that man, Botham John. And she went, went into his apartment shot him dead. Tragic story. Horrible story. And in the wake of that trial there was a lot of chatter on Twitter and on social media. Because uh, Mr. Jean's younger brother hugged his brother's murderer and she was convicted and there was this great moment of forgiveness. But the judge also only gave her, the officer, 10 years. And many people took issue with that because they said, well, is really, is his life only worth 10 years? You know, she took everything from him. How is this justice? So you had two sides of the coin. You had the forgiveness and then you had the injustice. But- This just goes to show you that even in our modern society, we do not like it when a judge goes light on justice, whether or not you agree with the verdict. It's irrelevant right now. I'm not saying it's irrelevant in the big scheme of things, but to this point, we see that the idea of a judge being light on sin and light on crime is very relevant to us. So no, God is not being capricious. For God to be fair, he has to inflict the maximum penalty on sin and on crime. And the maximum penalty is the wrath of God. All right, then. Uh The fact that we sin, though, if God's in control, God gave us our free will. Now, this, is, this is the next objection. Is God just punishing us just for simply using our free will? Well, in a sense, yes. He's punishing us for doing something that we choose to do. Yes, that's true. But it's not like our free will is neutral. I mean, we're choosing to sin. We're choosing to rebel against God. Remember, we're, we're rejecting God, and, and that is wrong. That is sinful. So that, so we're right back to God having to be just and having to be fair. So no, um, God is not being unfair, and yes, God is punishing us for the choices that we make. Uh, is God punishing us for something that he caused to happen? Um, not unfairly so, because we are responsible for our sin. And so while God is completely sovereign there is still human responsibility and we don't want there to not be human responsibility. We want to be free in that. We want to we want our choices to be meaningful. The the problem is there's the corollary of that is that we have to face the consequences for those choices. All right, now last objection. Isn't it awfully exclusive to only provide one way out of God's wrath? What about those who never hear the gospel? If the gospel is the only way, is that unfair? Well, two responses to this. One, first, there's nothing in the Bible that says that anyone deserves a chance at all. In fact, in Romans 9, further on in in Romans, God, through the Apostle Paul, repeats something that he had said in in, uh, Exodus where he says, I think it's Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will uh, have compassion on whoever I will have compassion on. The idea that God saves anyone is an unbelievable example of God's mercy, His grace. Wrath is what we deserve. The fact that He forgives anyone is undeserved. The gospel is not something that we can go to God and say, You owe me your grace. We can't, we are creatures and, and sinful creatures at that. We have no right to demand anything of God. And so to those who never hear the gospel, Paul makes it very clear, they have no excuse. In fact, he uses those exact words, so they are without excuse. There is enough evidence and proof in creation to condemn every sinner, you, me, everybody. So the gospel is purely grace. And if you've heard the gospel and you believe it, and you've come to that point where you've trusted in Jesus, man, you ought to be on your knees thanking God that he would ever save a sinner like you. And I gotta tell you, I don't thank God nearly enough for what he did for me. I, I was wretched. I'm still wretched apart from God's grace. I don't deserve his grace. Neither do you. So is it exclusive? Yeah, it's exclusive. But there's only one savior who's ever died for sinners. There just is only ever one. So he, he, by definition, he can be the only one. Second, I would say this. If you're concerned about the exclusivity of this and you're concerned about what happens to people who never hear the gospel, man, get on your horse, go go into the mission field, become a pastor, become a, an evangelistic worker because they do need to hear it. They need to hear the gospel. And so um, it's up to you to tell them. It's up to you to, to give the grace of God to those who have not heard the grace of God. And if you're hearing some noises in the background, my my kids are coming in. They're home from school. They're uh, I don't know if dinner's ready. I don't know what's going on out there, but uh, this is the joys of being in my home study. Um, so let's let's wrap it up. God's wrath is very real. God's wrath is very relevant. and we can see examples of God's wrath at work, in our lives, in our legislatures, in our communities. And God's wrath is permissive until it's permanent. God's wrath is avoidable only through Jesus Christ, only by God's grace. So I hope that this helps you. It gives you a framework to talk about God's wrath. You don't have to use the exact words I did. If you thought I my language was a little too theological, that's all right. You can you can put this into language that you think would be more contextualized. But I hope we've seen that the, that God's word does give us the framework for talking about wrath in a way that is very relevant. Uh, If you want to get in touch with the Think Institute, I would love for you to do that. You can, of course, listen to the Think Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher. We're on TuneIn. We're on all the different platforms, most of the different platforms. But you can, if if you search for us, because I know some people have been searching in Apple Podcasts and can't find us. It will come up in the search results, but then there's nothing there. So what you can do, just go to thethink.institute. There's a big old link right there on the front of the page. Scroll down there, swipe down there, and uh, click on the icon. That'll that'll bring you to our site where you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, I also want to remind you again for the Think update, which is going to be coming out, God willing, on Friday. Subscribe to that. There's a, there's a link to that on the website as well, but that's going to be weekly content. It's going to be a brief weekly email to help you define and defend just what it is that you believe. So this is not goodbye. This is just a short stop along the way. I hope it's been helpful for your spiritual journey. I hope it's helped you put another uh, link in your chain mail uh, as you go out into your spiritual battle, um, taking up the spiritual armor of God. And until next time, I hope it made you think.